here a lot, uh, one big reason is because of his influence in my life. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage him this morning. I pray that you would empower him. I pray that you would remind him that he is coming in the name of Jesus not to lift up his name. And I know that's his heart. And so, God, would you bless him? Would you bless the people that are listening this morning, God? And I pray that we would walk out encouraged. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. It is so good to be with you guys. It's fun as I'm looking around to see so many familiar faces that I haven't seen in a while. As I think about Pastor Ben, um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for him and his influence on my life, but as I think about him, I am so um, grateful and thankful for him in a way that, uh, honestly, like he is truly a, a godly man. He's a friend. Um, he and Nikki uh, prayed for a long time before even taking the call to come be in this church and, and to be a part of what's, what God is doing in your life and leading you. And um, there's a lot of sacrifices behind the scenes that Pastor Ben and Nikki and their kids, our kids are like family. Like we're not like, when we talk about being brothers and sisters, we really feel like we're brothers and sisters. And in fact, we don't know which daughter is actually mine and which one's Ben's because Ashlyn, I think... It's Ashlyn Scroggins, right? And Reese Hurt. So that's, we have to say first and last names in order to figure out which daughter goes with which family. Uh, we love adopting uh, Reese over into our home because then we get house cleaning and chores done and all kinds of things. <laughs> because in a family her size, she's so used to doing all that stuff. So, um, but we are extremely thankful for the Hurt family and extremely thankful for what uh, they are doing in this church and how they are leading and, and sacrificing for you all. Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 142. Open your Bibles to Psalm 142. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about the godliest woman I've ever known. Uh, her name was Nita Mays. She was uh, a, a woman in California when we, we, we did ministry in California before coming out to the Midwest. And while we were there, we met a woman called Nita Mays. Um, and she had suffered from, um, honestly, back, back injuries and back surgeries for about 40 years, 40 or 50 years of her life. Uh, when she was younger, she had uh, back problems that led to a back surgery. And if any of you have had back surgery, sometimes that in and of itself is completely crippling and leads you to a dark place of despair and destruction and things. And well, after that surgery, it actually messed her up in ways that she didn't know. And so she had to have a corrective surgery for that back surgery. And then that started all the corrective surgeries throughout the next 35 years of her life. She was in constant pain her entire life. In fact, I asked her one time, uh, Nita, like if you were to measure, like any, any doctor, right? If you measure your pain, they always say on a scale of one to 10, what are you feeling? And that's how they measure it in order to understand. And she would always say her constant life level of back pain was a seven and a half to eight, just her constant. And so uh, there were times when she would have a five or a four, but it never dipped below four. And so um, I, she would come to church every once in a while, but when she did, it would actually wipe her out for like the next three to four weeks because of just coming to church. And so I asked her one time, well, why do you come to church? Why do you do this? Why? Because you can watch online, you can listen to messages, we can bring messages to you, those kind of things. And she said, and she was, uh, she, she was British, so she had this accent that I'm not going to attempt, but pretend I was attempting a British accent. 
My son can actually probably do a Brit- British accent better than I, but he's not going to do it for us this morning. He's shaking his head no at me. Um, but she, she said, a dearie, because that's what British women say, right? So I can't say the accent, but dearie, I go to church so that I could be with God's people and hear God's word, and it doesn't matter what I have to sacrifice to be there. Because I know the community of God and God's word is what I need in my life. And then she would take the next three to four weeks to recover from being there. Not all have the faith of Nita Mays, but we can. We can have the same faith it took her to live every single day. We can have that same faith. And we have access. We have the same Lord she did. Now she's in heaven. She's with the Lord now, right, pain-free. But we can have that same thing. Uh, and oftentimes in our, in our current times, in our current circumstances, like trials and things right now, I'm finding that more people are finding it difficult to trust and hope again. Like we're coming out of a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of things going on around us, right? If you look at the news for 12 minutes, like it is hard. It is difficult. And there's a lot more people that are feeling trapped in their circumstances, isolated from biblical community and abandoned by others, right? And so I just want to speak to us this morning and talk to us a little bit about a true hope for your soul is found while turning to the Lord in desperation. Nita turned to the Lord every single day because she knew how desperate she was. She knew how desperate she was for the Lord to sustain her, for the community of believers to come around her. Psalm 142, starting in verse 1, says this. With my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now before jumping into all of the texts here in Psalm 142, you know that Psalm 142 is written by David, a man after what? After God's own heart. So how does a man after God's own heart get to the place where he writes a psalm like this? Where he writes this. Well, uh, we have to take a look, a cursory look at back at 1 Samuel uh, from chapter 8 to chapter 22, right? We're not going to look at all of that, and I'll just explain to you guys some of those things, and we'll look at a few of the texts. But there's a significant transition in Israel's history at this point, right? God had set up a system of prophets and judges to rule over his chosen people. And it's in this moment when Israel decides we want a king. Right? We want a king. And so they keep pounding 
and saying, God, we want a king. We want a king. And God's warning them, if I give you a king, this is what will happen. Right? But they keep saying, we want a king. And so then God gives them a king. In chapter 19, God responds with anointing Saul as their king. As king, Saul was strong. He was a warrior and fought battles and won lots of battles. He was a strong king. But he acted foolishly when he did not obey God's instructions against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 13, uh, verses 13 through 14 say this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command over, you have not kept the command of the Lord of your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Right? The Lord, if you're not a good steward of what the Lord has given you, he will take things away from you, right? In response to Saul's disobedience, the Lord rejected Saul as king. And then chapter 16 reveals God's choice to anoint David to take Saul's place. Over the next several chapters, you begin to see the relationship between Saul and David develop. And interestingly enough, David, uh, because Saul eventually had just a, a horrible disposition because now the kingship was taken away from him. Uh, David is playing harp or playing music for Saul to calm his soul. During that time, uh, David is also developing a great relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Eventually, David marries the king's daughter. So there's a great relationship there. And all of this is happening while David was anointed by Samuel. Right? So he's not been made king yet, but at some level, now he's made prince. And, and we don't know in Scripture whether or not Saul knew that all that was happening. We don't have a direct indication that that was happening. But we do know uh, Saul was starting to get very jealous and angry over what, what people were saying about David, right? First Samuel 18, 6 through 7 says this, As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, which you remember is the giant Philistine whose name was Goliath. Yeah. When he struck down the giant Philistine, the, woman, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they, as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry and displeased became very jealous. In fact, um, I don't know if you've ever had anybody say this about you, but I think about what Saul said regarding David and wanting to pin him to the wall with a spear. Like, that's just crazy. Like, I don't think I've ever had anybody that mad at me. Like, where they wanted to pin me. In 1 Samuel 18, um, verse 11, it says, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, <laughs> I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice, because that's God's man. Right, so David evaded him. Over the next few chapters, David or Saul tries to kill David uh, a few more times, and Saul or David keeps escaping. Right, and now in Psalm 142, we see David escape over to the cave of Adullam. Right, and so now we pick up in Psalm 142. 
this is a psalm of David recounting his desperate days in hiding from Saul. Like, do you, you catch how Saul, how David must have been feeling when he gets to this cave and he's hiding after his father-in-law, right? His best friend's dad is trying to hurl a spear at him and at one point even tried to hunt him down with 30,000 men. Right now he's in this cave while he's facing destruction in the pursuit of his king. Verse or uh, Verse 1, with my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. So, so point number one is this. Turn to the Lord because he hears the cries of his saints. Remember David, this is David who kills lions, bears, Goliath, and ten thousands of men. Now in distress, David is being pursued. Pursued by his best friend's dad, pursued by his father-in-law, pursued by the king of Israel. He's being pursued. The king has a lot of things at his, dis at his uh, disposal that he can use to pursue David. So David is running. David is fleeing. This is seemingly one of the most stressful times in David's life. It is though he is now realizing his situation and it is like a rush of emotions that overwhelm his heart. And his mind. And he says, I turn to you, O Lord. It, so it's okay. It's okay to cry out to the Lord. In fact, these verses that David helps us understand, this is not just a simple cry. It's not just a, like an, an inaudible thing. This is an audible cry. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by something that you have to cry out audibly? This is David crying out audibly before the Lord. This is a cry that has a ton of desperation and earnestness to it. This is not like my soul waits in silence. This is a loud, audible cry to the Lord. This is a loud psalm. In fact, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, David made the gloomy vaults of the cave echo with his appeals to heaven. It's a pretty awesome example of what we should be doing when our soul is in desperation, right? I don't know about you guys, but I feel a lot more desperation these days than I ever have before. There's a lot going on, either in our own families, in our own community, in the world around us. I mean, I see it on the front lines because of the work that I do at the church and care and counseling. I see it. I see people that are completely desperate. Right? And so we have to use this psalm as an example of David, who is this manly man. If I looked in scripture and I and I picked the top five men in this in the Bible of who the manliest men are, David is at the top of the list. And he's crying out to the Lord. Not whimpering before the Lord. He's crying out. The way that we pray testifies what we believe about God. Think about that for a second. The way that we pray testifies what we believe about God. Do we cry out loud? Do we beg him? Do we, or do we just go to him when we have simple ailments and, and we treat him more as a tool to handle the things that we desire? 
Right? This psalm models for us how we ought to pray and look to the Lord. Alvin Reed says this, prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes, not ours. Right? Prayer leads to the fulfillment of God's purposes, not ours. And crying out loud to the Lord, David is modeling that it is right to contend of the Lord. It is right to plead to the Lord. It is right to plead for mercy to the Lord. David's first cry is for mercy. Knowing that God's sovereign control encompasses all things, this has an element of pleading for protection and kindness and compassion and recognition. This is, this is a cry that recognizes God's complete and total sovereign authority and power. David's not praying and, and asking God to remove him from the circumstance. He's asking God to help him thrive in the middle of the circumstance. I cry to you, O Lord, for mercy. Right, we can take a lesson from this. With this, you know our out loud cry and plea for mercy does not always equal God's action on it either. Just because we cry for it doesn't mean God's going to take action and do what we want him to do. It's so that our heart could be transformed into his heart, not the other way. In crying out loud to the Lord, David is demonstrating a way that we can humbly complain before the Lord. So it's okay to complain before the Lord. It's okay to complain before him. Right, when you cry out loud in submission, David was completely aware of his need to wait and trust and surrender. So in his complaint, he's still surrendering. It's not a shaking his fist at the Lord as much as it's an open-handed, Lord, I need you. Lord, I surrender. You are God. You are sovereign. This is a normal interaction between people in a relationship, by the way. Um, how many of you, uh, whenever you don't like something, uh, you can make sure you tell the other person that you don't like it very well? I took a, one of the students um, from our church in Granger who happens to be a little bit autistic, uh, just a young kid. I took him out to lunch and we grabbed burgers together. Like I wanted to hang out with him and just there were some things going on in his life. And I thought instead of sitting in a, a boring counseling office, I thought let's go to Five Guys and grab a burger. Maybe he'll, he'll talk more, right? So we did that. And we grew, grabbed this burger. Instead of a, a Five Guys burger, he wanted a, a cheese sandwich from Five Guys. And I thought, why would you do that? But he, that's what he wanted. And so we sit down and we eat. We have fries and drink. And he has this sort of a grilled cheese sandwich between two hamburger buns, right? So he has this. And I remember it was really funny. Like yesterday, I remember this. And I said, buddy, like, what do you think? Like, this is cool, right? We get to hang out. And he goes, Pastor Nathan, the next time we go out to eat, can you take me to pizza instead? I don't like hamburgers. <laughs> I was like, yes, we can do that. Like, for sure we can do that. Eat your, eat your cheese sandwich, you know. <laughs> but he was quick to let me know, right? So we are quick to let each other know. It's okay to do that. And he was doing that in such a humble and, like, loving way that you're just, like, endeared to him even more as a result of it. And I think when we complain before the Lord the right way, it actually endears us to the Lord even more. Right? And there's a way that we can do that that isn't shaking our fist and angry and pounding the table, but it's just demonstrating humility. 
So it's part of the normal relationship to complain and crying out loud to the Lord. David is confessing and pouring his heart out. He's confessing to the Lord. Right? It's okay to confess and all that is troubling you, not just the things you need to seek forgiveness for, but David discloses all the things that are troubling him too. He's crying out, confessing, and here's what's troubling me, Lord. Here's what's going on. And in verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Right? David is brought very low in these moments. And he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he's being, he's being hunted. His persecutors are strong, and they are setting traps for him. David's been abandoned by his friends, his best friend his wife, and, this, and there seems like there's no way or no place for hope, and, and we may find ourselves honestly in similar situations or where we think there's no place, no way for hope. But David is simply demonstrating the anguish of the soul and dependence upon the Lord. David said, I cry to you, Yahweh. I cry to you, Lord. there's ever a moment when you cried out to the Lord like this, like it should be now. I remember um, when, when Barbara, my wife, was pregnant with our son, Micah. Uh, we had him in California. Right after we had him, there was difficulties and complications in birth. And, and as a result of it, um, we were sitting one day in our living room, and Barbara had severe back pain. And there were some misdiagnoses that happened with what was happening. Um, anyways, we're sitting in our living room one day, and Barbara says to me, my, my leg is really warm. My, my whole leg is really hot. And, um, and I said, well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> right? She's in a, a recliner with her legs up, and we're sitting, and lots going on. Anyways, I said, that doesn't sound really good. So I turned, I grabbed my baseball hat, my keys, and my sandals. And then I turned back around, and by the time I turned back around, I look at her leg, and it's completely blue. And I thought, doesn't sound good, that doesn't look good, that doesn't feel good, let's go to the emergency room now, you know, so we got in the car, and, and Micah, I think, was just a couple weeks old at that point, and um, we get in the car, and we get to the hospital, and they, they say, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blood clot, you know, and we find out later that it was not just a blood clot, there was a deep vein thrombosis in her left leg that went from her ankle all the way to her hip, and her whole leg was a blood clot. And I remember finding out that night that there's this blood clot in my wife's leg while I have a three-week-old baby at home and just thinking, what do I do? Lord, if, if you require the life of my wife tonight. And I remember, like, when I, when I said this, I wasn't just saying, oh, oh, Lord, if you require the life. I was like, Lord, if you require the life of my wife tonight, you will have to give me the strength. You have to. Because I don't have it. I don't have that kind of strength in me. And crying out to the Lord in that moment, I cried to Yahweh. I cried to the Lord and said, you have to do this. That, and that was appropriate. I, wasn't, I, was, I was only demanding what God had already promised. I wasn't demanding anything from God that he hadn't already promised. If we turn to him in moments of despair, he will give us strength. He will give us hope. He will fill us with the Spirit. And so we have to turn to the Lord when we see, when there seems to be no refuge. We have to turn to the Lord when there seems to be 
no refuge, point number two, right? In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. That's just a very lonely place when you come to the place of realization or at least believing no one cares for my soul. That is hard. Interesting thing about Christ being, or interesting thing about being in Christ though is that there is always a refuge. There is always a place to go. There is always somebody who cares for your soul despite what you feel, despite what you internalize despite the way that the world around you seems to be collapsing in on you, right? Christ says, I will never, what? Leave you nor forsake you. Like you were in Christ Jesus. He didn't give his blood for you so that one day he could forsake you. Like it doesn't even make sense, right? So in Christ, there's always hope. The primary thing that keeps us from truly taking advantage of refuge in Christ every single day is our own doubts. Our own doubts plague us. Think about it. By the way, that's the way Satan uh, collapsed Adam and Eve into sin, right? He got them to doubt. You remember the first question that Satan said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? And as soon as they start doubting, then all of a sudden they start hoping and wanting something that God didn't promise them. Right? That's the same thing. It's the same way that Satan leads us into temptation and to doubt the promises of God. Did God really say that he would get you through? Yes, he did. Like that should be your next answer all the time. Jesus, by the way, was confronted by Satan and he tried the same thing with Jesus when he came out of the 40 days and 40 nights. Did, if you truly are the son of God, then you could turn this loaf into or you can turn this rock into a loaf of bread, right? And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God, right? So he didn't doubt. He trusted. He believed in the word of God. He turned to the word of God in those moments. When despairing, the temptation is to believe you are trapped. When despairing, the temptation to believe is to believe you are trapped. There's no way out. There's no other way. I'm isolated. I'm alone. I'm trapped. There's nothing else anybody can do for me, right? David is a very skilled warrior and leader. And to think that he's trapped in this cave, he's killed 10,000s of men, right? To think that this man with 400 other men with him is trapped is kind of ridiculous. It's like saying, you know, the, the Navy SEALs are trapped with 400 guys. They're just trapped there and they're not going to do anything. There's no way out. Right? They're going to figure out a way out. These are like the special forces of Israel. These guys can get out of there. David is amazing. But he's wanting to remain in submission and surrender and under what the Lord has called him to at the same time. So he feels trapped because he knows he can't go out and hunt Saul down. That's his king. God doesn't want him to do that. And he can't go destroy the king's army because he's been anointed to take over at some point, but he has to remain under long enough for the Lord to act and do his will. So he can't just go pull himself up by his own bootstraps and make it happen. He has to wait and trust. And in that waiting, he feels trapped, right? Sometimes 
we get to places where we feel extremely trapped as a result of the same thing. Though David feels completely alone, he is still, still maintaining his dependence and surrender on the Lord while being patient. John Calvin says it this way, it is common for persons in despair either to be prostrated with dismay or driven into a frenzy. But it appears from this psalm that David retained his composure, relying with assured confidence upon God and resigning himself to vows and prayers instead of taking unauthorized steps. So David trusted and waited. But the feeling of isolation makes things makes feeling trapped all the worse. So he feels completely isolated because he's not with people he loves, not with people he knows. He was very close to the monarch. He's very close to the king and very close to everything that that surrounded. And now he has none of that. He's by himself in a cave, <coughs> alone, trapped, feeling abandoned, right? Feeling completely abandoned in those moments. And certainly with a man like King Saul pursuing you with all of his might and all of his power while hiding in a cave, it's easy to feel isolated. It's e we don't blame David, right? Anybody blame David? Like, David, you should not be feeling this anymore, right? Anybody want to condemn, condemn David for a second? Like, what are you thinking, David? Right? It's easy from our perspective to want to say, David, what are you thinking? Like, don't you trust the Lord? Because we see the rest of all of Scripture. We're like, you're going to become king. Just wait a few chapters, you know? But at some level, like in the midst of it, none of us would condemn David for feeling and walking through the things that he did. Isolation comes when you believe you're alone and when you believe in your own abilities more than you trust God's power, right? So we don't want to be isolated. We want to trust in God's power because when we trust in God's power apart from our own abilities, then we know that God has something in store. And then it's just a matter of surrendering and waiting for the Lord to take action, right? Certainly there was no human aid or comfort that was to be expected or in comparison because he was left alone. He was abandoned, right? When feeling abandoned after having his best friend and his wife and those people around him, now he has none of it. He's feeling abandoned and he feels like that. He says, in fact, he says, no one cares for my soul. So you look to the right. And by the way, looking to the right, that was also a place of protection and authority and uh, there's no one even there to the right. There's no one, because you understand Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. So that right hand is the protection. That was, that's the place where you have security. And even at that place, there's no one there for me. No one cares for my soul. Now we know that's probably not completely true, but it feels that way when you're in a cave running from a king who's trying to kill you with all of his might. Think about this for a second, though. One theologian stated, but it was, it was God's purpose that he should be abandoned of all assistance from man. Think about, I'm thinking about that even in relationship to my own circumstances, my own life or people I've counseled. And, but it was God's purpose that he should be abandoned by all assistance from man and that his deliverance from destruction should thus appear more extraordinary 
right? So if it's for God's glory and God's purposes, when we feel completely abandoned by man and there's no other hope, no other things that we can do, man can't help us, I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps, there's nothing anybody else can do. And the Lord pulls you out of that situation and rescues you. Who gets the glory for it? God does. God loves getting glory for that. And so we have to spend more time trusting and understanding that God has purposes in all of our life's situations, no matter what it is, no matter how difficult it is. We may not get to see God's glory from it, this side of heaven, but we trust and we know that God will get the glory for it. When, when I was in the hospital room, I remember praying. Uh, Romans 8, 28. So many of you guys know that verse. Um, and just asking the Lord, Lord, if you desire to take the, the life of my wife tonight, I will need your, stand, your strength. Because you really do cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. I had to claim and hold on to that and trust and know that God's good would come from it. And praise the Lord, Barbara's still here. She's still alive. Sometimes I forget to finish that story and people ask, what happened to her, you know? She's here, praise the Lord. <laughs> and my son's still good to go. So that's awesome too. Um, but we have to understand that God will get the glory for these situations. God will get the glory, right? Difficult circumstances will lead to us in dire straits that will lead to God's provision, that will lead to God's glory, right? Number three, turn to the Lord and give thanks for his rescue. Turn to the Lord and give thanks for his rescue. He says, I cry to you in verse five, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry. When thankful, I'm motivated to say thank you to the Lord, for you are my refuge. Think about that. In the middle of your circumstances, whenever things are really tough, when things are really hard, if you're thankful for them, then you're able to say thank you to the Lord for his provision. For you are my refuge. Now, did David really have a lot of reason to say thank you to the Lord when he's being pursued by Saul and everything that was going on here? It's hard to say thank you. I'm alone, I'm abandoned, I'm isolated. My father-in-law is trying to kill me with 30,000 men. Thank you, Lord, <laughs> right? Like how many of us would be like, praise the Lord. Like that would be hard to say thank you for, but David chooses that. It's a purposeful decision that David says, thank you, Lord, you are my refuge. And it's a purposeful decision to cry out to the Lord. That in itself is an act of surrender to God. So it's a complete and total surrender to the Lord and all that he's saying, all that he's doing. David knows that God is his refuge. David knows that. David doesn't doubt that. He's tempted at times and he's being honest with his feelings here. He's being honest with what he's feeling and thinking and working through. But he does know that God is his refuge. When thankful, I'm motivated to say, Lord, I am too weak without you. It's good to admit when you're not strong enough. David did. When you're not strong enough, it's okay to admit my spirit is fainting within me. Lord, I need you. 
It's okay to admit that to your family, to your children, to your spouse. It's okay to say, I just don't have it. I just don't have what it takes to keep going on my own. It's okay to admit that to him and turn to him. I cannot handle this right now or ever. That is what David is saying in that moment. But he's saying, I, I can't handle this without you, Lord. I am too weak for these guys. When thankful, I'm motivated to say, Lord, I am grateful for your deliverance. The Lord will deliver you. The cave David is in, he thinks, is a prison isolated from people held captive with dark rock walls. Right? He thinks of it as a prison. But he says, the Lord will deliver me one day. The Lord will deliver me one day. David is also signifying that he is waiting for the Lord to bring him out. He's waiting for the sovereign control and desire of the Lord to make the move. He's waiting for the Lord to do it. He's not, he's not strategizing and figuring out how he's going to go out and take things over or make his own way out. He's waiting for the Lord to do it. He wants the Lord to bring him out and rescue him, not force an issue or make something happen prematurely, right? So David is not in control of his life or his deliverance. God is. So in situations when we find ourselves and we're feeling hopeless, remember that, that God is in control of all of those things and has a purpose for all of those things. Even if we don't see it or understand it, God has a purpose God has a reason all of those things are happening. There's a, a man who was a pastor in, um, in, in, in a Bulgarian communist. Uh, he was arrested and was placed as a prisoner in a Bulgarian communist prison. Uh, and this man was forced to stand on his feet day and night while his interrogators continued to ask him questions. And so I wanted to read this. This is from his journal after he got out. Um, he says this, In my feverish condition, I began having hallucinations. Little spots on the white wall in front of me came alive. I saw faces of people, of Ruth and Paul and Rhoda, then, then of the guards. Swirling patterns of blazing color were like mad kaleidoscope in front of me. I was certain I was going mad. He's dehydrated and all kinds of things are happening, right? And so then he says, on the 10th day, so now he's been doing this for 10 days, standing, without, without drinking, without eating. Like he's just standing there or giving him little to drink, just standing there. He says this, on the 10th day, still the collapse did not come. I lost all track of time. One day blurred into another. My swollen legs became huge and gorged with blood from my complete immobility. My lips were cracked wide open and bleeding. My beard was long, for I was... I had not been allowed to wash or shave since the day I was arrested. My eyeballs were on fire, yet somehow I stood. On the 10th night, sometime after midnight, I heard my interrogator snoring. As he dozed off, I moved my stiff neck to a window. And, and looked, it, it looked like a mirror. I recoiled in horror. It was a monster's reflection. I saw a horrible, emaciated figure, legs swollen, eyes with empty holes, it was grotesque, horrible, and repulsive. Suddenly it struck me that that horrible, bleeding, grotesque man was me. The monster was me. My numb mind slowly absorbed this fact that tears came to my eyes, and suddenly I felt crushed, so alone, so by myself, 
I felt as Christ must have when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I couldn't weep tears, but my body heaved with unwept tears. Then in that moment of total crushing hopelessness, I heard a voice as clear and distinct as any voice I had ever heard in my life. And it said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in that moment, when his soul began to trust in the Lord again, his whole demeanor actually changed. And the guards were like, what happened? Like, he looks like he has a second wind, like he's coming back around. And the Lord was sustaining him in moments when he did not have the ability. He was not strong enough, right? It's important to fix our eyes on Christ or remain focused on Christ, continually turning to him. Because he is our hope. He is our refuge. He is our source of strength. He provides all these things when we can't. Number four, turn to the Lord to find comfort and rest as a community. Sometimes these things are found in community. Verse seven, the end of verse seven, it says, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. The righteous will surround me. That means he has community around him. Community will come back around. David is beginning his praise of being freed from his captors who set traps. His feeling of isolation and abandonment. Now he is able to believe in a place that the righteous will surround him once again. And that's just an amazing thing when you think about the righteous coming back around his family, like he's thinking about what it's going to be like after the Lord rescues him. He longs to be back with those whom he loves. He longs to be back with them. This happens because David waits on the Lord. This happens because David surrenders to God. This happens because David seeks the Lord and not his own strength and power and might and judgment and control. He didn't seek those things, but only happens because he trusts in the Lord and waits on the Lord. David waited in this cave. David waited in this place of loneliness and isolation for the Lord to rescue him out, for the Lord to provide for him, for the Lord to draw him out of there. And, you know, it's, it's fun when we get back into a community because then we're known, we're connected and loved, right? And that's what the community of believers is for. That's why we provide strength for one another. And it's just such an awesome thing when we know that the Lord is in control, the Lord is gonna rescue us and we trust in the community of believers that surrounds us because when I'm weak, you can actually speak the words of the Lord to my heart and to my soul in ways that no other man can, right? And as a body of believers, I know that you've gone through stuff too. So when you speak into my life and we know that we've both been through hard things, it just brings comfort to my soul, to our souls, right? So Psalm 142 starts in a very ominous prison and ends praising the Lord, giving thanks to his name. While enduring the hard things, God growing closer to the Lord and being stretched on all sides, David gives us an example to follow. He gives us an example to walk through, to cry out, to hope, and to turn to the Lord in all of these things. David did not take matters into his own hands. He surrendered. And after all, 
right? In Samuel, it says to obey is better than to sacrifice. So we want to obey the Lord in all things. The cool thing is eventually David, we know the story, right? David is eventually crowned king of Israel. All of those things that he said, the community comes back around him. The Lord provides for him. And in that last verse, when it says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. The Lord is now dealing bountifully with David, giving him what he promised. The desperate need in current circumstances leads to total dependence upon the Lord. He will deliver you in the right time. But wait, wait for him to do that. And it is in this place that our true hope for a desperate soul is found by turning to the Lord in desperation, right? God will always come through. God will always 